welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Scott, we made it. Big episode this time. Big number. Oh, man. Episode number 10. I never thought we would make it here. Right. Adventures, welcome to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. It's episode 50. 50. Uh, we did it today. We're going to be looking at Nemesis and Nemesis Lockdown. Both. We're going to compare them side by side. We got a bunch of recent plays for you. Josh is going to join us for some Lost Loot and stick around for the end of the episode. We're going to do our top five of our most recent 10 review games. My name's Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And Scott, did you happen to see one of your favorite games is also a favorite of Trey Parker, South Park creator? That blew my mind whenever I saw that, and I had to send a congratulations to Connor right away. Whenever I saw the video with Trey Parker going on through his favorite games... He had a rather eclectic mix there. There was Fury of Dracula thrown in there. War of the Ring was thrown in there. And then all the way at number one was Summit, which blew my mind. You know, it's funny. We had that on our list of like, okay, this is an upcoming review. And now it's going to come off like we're pandering. Like, oh, they're just putting that there because it's in the hotness. (laughs) Darn it. No, we got it at PAX. We've, We've been waiting. It's been waiting in the weeds. But nevertheless, Dice Tower had a video up with Trey Parker. And that's what he said was his favorite was Summit. And speaking of which, the Dice Tower podcast is over. They've gone through their final 10. The podcast as is is done. I think they want to focus on video. And that's as simple as you... You know what? If I had to guess, they probably get they probably get five to ten thousand downloads per podcast, and oh, they get a sure. hundred thousand, hundred thousand plus per video, and it's mm-hmm. just a numbers game. Like there's a re- Tom's Tom's a smart guy. There's a reason they're doing that. But hey, that means there's a lot of folks out there that are looking for a new podcast to listen to. Spread the word of Level Up. Yes, yes, definitely. Please do. There's always room for more. Well, hey, we can actually call his name here. Whenever the podfather of gaming podcasts closes a door, another opens. So open the door to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We'd appreciate any sort of listening, any comments you have. Please let us know. In the meantime, go back and listen to our side quest of Solar 175. It launched March 1st. We don't know yet because we're recording on the 28th, but I bet you by the time this episode's live, they're at two or 300%. That game is awesome. Holy crap. I looked at that thing and I was upset that I didn't get a chance to play it with you on TTS, but oh my God, that thing looks amazing. All the details, all the bits and like... That is a good, crunchy game there, it looks like. Speaking of Kickstarter, Scott, you remember back in episode 41, we talked about Factory 42. Yeah, you had a lot of good things to say about that one. Well, it's back on GameFound, and I think by the time this episode goes live, it's only got a few days left. It's your chance to get Factory 42. Very solid game. Go back and listen to episode 41. Hear our thoughts about it. Adventures, just a couple of days left to get your copy. And next episode, I'm going to have a special level up centered right around Factory 42. I'm excited to share. Can't do it yet, but next episode's level up. I already know what it's going to be. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Scott, we had a funny thing happen. I 
had the chance to play a game called Feuds and Favors. It's going to be coming to Kickstarter on the 15th. I played that with the designer, Brad, and out of nowhere, two days later, Josh, our Lost Loot uh, friend, who yes. we'll be hearing from shortly, Josh said, hey, I found a game that you guys really need to do a side quest on. I really like it. I was like, well, we're pretty backed up at the moment, but what you have in mind? He's like, there's this game called Feuds and Favors. <laughs> so I hope you don't mind. Josh is going to join me for that one. I'm going to give you a little break here. I've been I've been uh, having your nose to the grindstone lately. So Josh is going to join me for a Feuds and Favors side quest on March 15th. Keep your ears open for it. That is going to be awesome. And the thing that's really cool here, and this coincides with our episode number 50, going through this started out very small. I mean, we're still small, but the idea that all these new games are coming out and people are saying, you should try this, you should try this, but we're actually getting a chance to try it at the same time. It's amazing. Now, thinking of that, also another game that was really huge on Kickstarter was once again, going back to Inside Up Games, was Earth. And oh, we just got goodness. our copy in. Oh, so, you got it? Yes, we got Thursday. our copy. So we're going to give that a try on Thursday. In our next episode, we'll give our thoughts on it and let you know what we thought of it. And I'm sure there's going to be a late pledge available for that. So everyone can hear our thoughts on it and pump in some more uh, funds to make sure that this game comes out even better than what he has planned right now. And I know Connor takes so much pleasure in making sure that the games that come out are absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. We're just throwing out all the stops on episode 50. I understand that we have a sponsored contest coming up later in the episode. Oh, you Bad adventures, keep your ears open. Our friends over at Dragon Dawn Productions are helping us celebrate episode 50. They wanted to do a giveaway. So we're going to be giving away a copy of Show or Show or Meshow. Mizzou. Makaleka High. Makaleka High. ho Keep your ears open. We're going to give you the details on how you can get in on that contest. It is worldwide eligible, unlike previous contests. So no matter where you are, you can get in on it. Just listen for details later on. And thank you to Dragon Dawn Productions for helping us celebrate episode 50 and sponsoring a little giveaway for us. We appreciate that. Yes. And I'll be giving my thoughts on that game here in just a few moments then as Ooh. well. Well, do you want to lead off with that? Hey, why not? Recent adventures. You got the floor, Scott. All right. So I got a chance to play said game. Mazau, Maso, Michaud, Michelle, however you want to pronounce it. Okay, wait, wait. Uh, M-A-E-S-H-O-W-E. So if you're looking to look it up, M-A-E-S-H-O-W-E, and we're not going to try and pronounce. We're going to call it the M game. Hey, that works out perfect. (laughs) It was designed by Lee Broderick. And according to the Orkning Nega saga, two Vikings broke into a chambered tomb of Mashau on Orkney in AD 1150. They got trapped in there. And then there was a snowstorm that came in. And they were trapped in there with nothing but themselves and a possibility of getting some food. Right away, I'm going to tell you, it's not really happy. But there is a hell of a puzzle in this thing. Oh, yeah? So... What you're doing is you have a handful of cards. You have a dark player board that you're playing on. Mm -hmm. You have stones that are showing the stones you need to remove from in front of you in order to get out of said two. So whenever you're playing this, you're playing cards out in a row to get you ahead. There may be some cards that you play. It will dig out one of the stones. Oh, wait, there's a goose. This might give you food. 
But wait, here's one here that you all of a sudden feel really sad. You have to lose one food and lose one health. This will go back and forth. And on each one of the cards, you have Viking runes on them in colors of blue and red. Play a card, you draw a card. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. What happens is as you draw those cards, you put them out, you have those different color runes up in the top corner of the card. If at any point in time, you get all five of those having the same color rune, well, you go slightly mad and you have to shuffle all the cards back together and start over again. Now, everything that's going on as far as you digging out stays the same. Nothing changes on that. But those cards that you got rid of that got rid of your food or made you go slightly mad, they're all back in the deck once again. It's really a fun puzzle game. It doesn't take a lot of real estate on a table. So if you're out having coffee or something, nice little game that you can play there. A lot of people come up and ask, uh, what are you doing with these runes and all this dark stuff on your table? But Do they really call them runes? Have oh, you had yes. someone walk up to you in the coffee shop and said, what are you doing with all these runes? Hey, you don't stay at the same coffee shops I do. So back off, Patrick. Got it. <laughs> it scratches your brain. I mean... Do you want to take a chance and take out two of the red cards from the five that you have out there? There's three blue cards, two red cards. You're going to use them. You might get those two blue cards and get all that crap back in. Or do you want to just take a chance and lose some of your food, but dig further ahead? There's a lot of tense decisions you have to do. I don't think this is one that I'm going to play constantly, but it's always going to be in the back of my head that I'm like, that's what I did wrong the last time. If I did it this way, so it's something that's going to be challenging you. It's always going to be in the back of your head, just tapping there going, hello, Scott, remember me, Michelle? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's really a great game. It really gets you into it. You do feel closed in. You really get the feeling of that you're in this tomb with these Vikings. So the theme comes out of it. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, just the feeling that you get from the uh, the cards. And everything's dark. And I'm glad he did it this way instead of going more of a cartoonish, like, oh, here's a Viking trying to dig out. No, these things are dark. And they really get you into the theme of the game of trying to dig your way out of this tomb. It surprised me a lot more than I expected it to. It's a small box. But there's a lot of feeling that's packed into this. I, I can't put my finger on exactly what I, I'm feeling, but you feel claustrophobic. You feel stuck in there. And whenever you flip it over, I love it. There's a goose in it. So whenever a goose comes a up, goose? hey, a goose fell into the tomb just by accident out in the snowstorm. <laughs> you got some what? food. You flip it over, you see that white goose, you feel good. You feel like, aha. Uh -huh. The salvation the corner. Yeah. And then you get all five cards and go slightly mad and shuffle everything back together again. Scott, I'm uh, seeing a weight rating of two on BGG. This must not be an overly complex game. No, it's, it's not. It, it's not complex in, as far as learning it. But like I said, the complexity comes in the decisions that you're making with those cards. That's what you want to see in a game. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm excited that we're getting a chance to give away a copy of this because I know that I didn't really hear that much about it until we got a copy of it. Wow. This is one of those hidden gems that just like hides out and you don't know about. It. And once you get it, it's like, 
why didn't I know more about this? And I'm glad we're just saying, hey, everyone, try Michael. It's awesome. Or Michelle, <laughs> Michelle, Mizzo. Please, someone tell me how to say it. I, I'm begging you. Well, let's tell adventurers how they can win a copy. Very good. I think you have the information right there. All right, adventurers, time to score some loot. Our friends at Dragon Dawn Productions have provided us a copy of Michaud, an Orkney saga to give away to one of you. Michaud, an Orkney saga, is a game centered around the tale of the tomb of Michaud. Legend has it that it was discovered in AD 1150, and shortly thereafter, a group sheltered there during a heavy blizzard, but became trapped. According to this legend, one of these souls escaped the tomb of Michaud, but the others were driven mad. In this game, for one to two players, you're tasked with escaping that tomb. King Scott tells us this is a gem, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. Here's how Level Up can get a copy in your hands. Simple. Join our Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. That's it. And we'll even give you the Level Up Micro Badge for joining. The winner will be picked on April 15th, 2022, so join the guild and show off that micro badge. And in a level up first, this contest has worldwide eligibility. No matter where you are, we'll get this game in your hands. And thank you to Dragon Dawn Productions. Check out their library, including games such as Factory 42, Perdition's Mouth, Great Eminence, and more at ddpgames.com. This is awesome. Thanks again, guys. Now, Patrick, what'd you play? Well, what did we play? Did one that you and I got the chance to play together with the help of Teacher Ryan by Ivan Lashin and published by Arcane Wonders. We're talking Furnace 2021 game. In a game of Furnace, two to four players are going to play as 19th century capitalists who manipulate the market and manage their industrial empires. I feel like I should be curt and like playing with the edge of my mustache. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm sitting back here with my cigar and my monocle in right now. So, yeah, keep on, keep mm-hmm. going. Well, Furnace is an engine builder that's going to play over four rounds, and honestly, it's not that hard to grasp, but oh boy, does it ramp up quickly. Basically, you're acquiring cards that are going to interact with each other, chaining and comboing to provide you more or better resources, which can be converted into points. Let's start here. Beginning of the game, each player has some number of resources and a character card that's going to give them an asymmetric power, as well as a basic starting factory card. We also each got four discs, numbered one through four. Now, each round of the game has two phases, bidding and then production. That's it. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the bidding phase. Players are each going to bid on the factory cards that make up in the middle of the table. I believe the market always has a number of cards equal to the number of players plus four. Was it four, Scott? Yes, I believe it was uh, three, seven. I think it was, yes. Okay, so in our three-player game, there were seven cards to work with in the middle. The first player might select a card and place their disc with a three on it. The next player can choose any card to put a disc on. But if they opt for that same card that's already got the three disc, they can't place a three. They can place a four, which is going to guarantee that they're going to win that bid. Or they can place a one or two, which has its benefits. Why would I bid on something if I know I can't go and win? Players are going to go around placing their tokens until every one of them has been placed. And at that point, starting with the leftmost card in the market and going down the row, every card's going to be resolved. And this is really cool. If you have the highest disc, you take that card and you add it to your factory. If you don't have the highest disc, you instead get the resource benefit listed on the top of the card. That's every card has some number of resources. You might have a card that has, uh, we'll say, two iron on it. And let's suppose that you put a two token there. You didn't win it, but you get 
two iron. How many times? Twice, because you used your two token. So if Scott places his four there, guaranteeing that he's going to win his card, I can put my three disc there, knowing that I'm not going to win it, but I'm going to get six iron. Very cool. That can be huge. And it makes you reconsider immediately slapping your four disc down as you like, because you don't want to give everybody else a chance to gain a triple benefit or a double benefit. It's like a bidding game where you are quite incentivized to hold your high bid. Mm -hmm. Now, after resolving all these discs and that market phase ends, players are then going to run their factory. And this means basically you're going to run each card that's in front of you, simply turn it sideways, show that it's been used, and you carry out its ability. Now, typically that means gaining or converting resources and then turning those resources into points. Now, let's take the game from good to very good. One of the abilities that players can trigger, and it's on your starting factory card, so you're always going to have the opportunity to do this, is to upgrade a card in your factory. See, every card in the game is double-sided, and upgrading it simply means flipping it over. Now, obviously, the upgraded side of the card is better, but more importantly, what this does is it makes you consider the timing of when you're going to activate each card in your factory. So, do I want to use this one first? Or do I want to try and upgrade it and then trigger it? Oh, but if I use that one first, then this one, I could double upgrade and trigger these points. You can imagine after after like the third or fourth round. Oh, I tell you what, Scott, we accumulated something like a half a dozen or more cards. That puzzle got really complex when you're running your own little factory. Four rounds over, high score wins. What would you think of Furnace, Scott? Once we were done playing, I felt I knew the game. But that was not mm -hmm. enough. This was one of those games you want to learn to master. You want to know yeah. what to do when this happens, when this happens. I kind of accrue it to a chess game where everyone knows like, well, if they move that pawn, I need to do this. You get into that thing mm -hmm. where you look at if someone does this, you need to do that. I'm in that nice spot right now where I don't know it that well. So I want to play against people that really know it well. Because I'll be just like that X factor that just messes up their whole game. Because they were like, why the hell did he do that? But um, <laughs> yeah, I was really impressed with this. Whenever I saw you had four tokens to, to bid with, I'm thinking, this isn't going to really be all that great. We're not going to be able to fill things. Uh, to, oh, 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 wait, wait. Oh, oh, oh. There were so many, mm -hmm. like... There are a lot of games that have that damn it moment we like to talk about. This one had... Oh, yeah. Oh, bidding games are This special. one had a ton of, oh, oh, moments where that light flicks on and you're like, okay, I see the whole picture right now and this is freaking amazing. I want this game. So, yeah, I was really, really pleasantly impressed by this game. It's a very deep strategic game in that you have to act tactically. And we oftentimes, you know, we, we differentiate between tactics and strategy. Strategy being the long term and tactics being the short term. The strategy is how are we going to win the war? Tactics are what are we going to do mm -hmm. in this battle, right? So Furnace, there are often times where you may have a grand strategy, but it's going to change as the game progresses because you're going to have different opportunities to get better cards. Or if somebody places a four disc down and opens up an opportunity for you to put a three right under it to get a triple trigger, the benefit of that card, that might suddenly yeah. change your course uh, of, of action. That might change where you are headed. And I love that we're still in the discovery phase of this game. And I think Furnace is a game that's going to have a lengthy, lengthy discovery phase. You'd mentioned it's going to be the kind of game that's going to be a lot 
lot of fun to play over and over and master. And I agree with you, but I'm having a lot of fun right now in that discovery phase where, okay, I tried last time being a, a little more we'll say mindful of getting right. triple benefits and double benefits. Next time I'm going to try just building up a factory with a ton of cards, ton of cards. That's kind of what I did last when we were playing. I think I had 11 or 12 cards. I had two more than Ryan did, mm-hmm. but you know what? Ryan won that game. And, and the other thing about this game is that I, I'm i glad that they, they had to have done a lot of play testing with this because you think about it, four rounds, that's not too long, but – if it went five rounds, I feel that it would have outstayed its welcome. It was just enough that yeah. it want, you want more, but it wasn't enough that you were like, oh, it's over. Well, you know what helped was that we were able to run our factories. That's yes. basically simultaneous. You don't have to sit and watch each person do it. You can all just do it at the same time. And uh, I, I thought that made it mm-hmm. just speed by. So it's a thinking game with a, a lot of number crunching, a, a sort of a, a head down and trying to plan out your turn. And yet it is quite interactive in the bidding system. It's a winner for me. Yeah, that's very, furnace. very much impressed by it, And that's a winner on my side there as well. There had to have been a dumb segue we could have done. I know. I know. I, we'll work on it. We, hey, you're a magician whenever it comes to producing these podcasts here. I'm waiting to I'll see what kind of little things you can do. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it getting hot in here? I hear you had the chance to play Seven Wonders Architects. Tell us about it, Scott. Yes, so I got a chance to play Seven Wonders Architects. This is designed by Antoine Bauza and published by Repos Productions. Now, a lot of people know Seven Wonders. I Really, I think that this should be in the classics, like Hall of Fame almost. This is a great entry-level thing to introduce people to drafting of cards to a lot of the symbols that are used in cards and stuff like that. And whenever I teach people the first game of Seven Wonders, almost always they're like, you know what, can we play this again? And it comes right back again. And it's so easy to turn around and play it. So number one, the main Seven Wonders game doesn't take long to play. Seven Wonders Architects, once again, doesn't take very long to play. But it still gives you the same fun feeling of playing Seven Wonders, but it it almost feels a lot quicker to me for some reason. What you're doing here is instead of your basic board of creating one of the Seven Wonders and just putting the things underneath there, the cards underneath there that you normally do, Seven Wonders Architects, you actually have the wonder in front of you in usually Mm -hmm. four or five different pieces that you need to build. In order to get those pieces that you need, you need resources. Bricks to stone, glass, papyrus, wood. What you do is you have your wonder. You have a person next to you on one side. They have a wonder. There could be another person on the other side of you. They have a wonder. So you're all trying to build your wonders at the same time while keeping an eye on how far everyone else is and what you're doing. In between Mm -hmm. each wonder, you're going to have a deck of cards, totally random. You flip them over, you can see what is there. There could be a... Wait a minute. So five people are sitting around a table, and I've got a deck of cards in between each of the people. Yes, you do. You have a deck of cards in between each person. And then there's one mystery deck. So what will happen is you flip over a card, and everyone knows what those top cards are, except you don't know what that mystery card is. Now, very similar to Seven Wonders, the base game, 
you're more interested in the two people on either side of you that are building mm -hmm. their wonders. You can have cards in here that will be resources. There could be cards in here that are money that can be used as a wild card, if you will, to represent any sort of resource. There are also victory point cards. You got your, uh, I'm sorry. You got your sciences oh, in there. You have your sciences in there as well. You have warriors in there. Warriors are interesting because you can build up an army, but it doesn't do anything. But if you have those warriors that come out that have the trumpet rallying the troops, you get one step closer to a battle breaking out amongst everyone. What happens when there's a battle? Whenever there is a battle, you will fight amongst the two people on either side of you. Mm -hmm. The other people, I mean, the other person across from you, player number four, they could have the biggest army in the world, but it's not going to bother you at all. You're just worried about those ones on either side of you. Okay. Now, as long as you have more warriors than them, you win. You get three victory points. If you don't, you lose. They get th three victory points, but you don't lose anything. Now, as you go along, each level of your wonder is going to take a certain number of resources. So you could have three of the same resource that will flip over them. You may need three of completely different resources. It's really tricky there how you go along here figuring out what resources you need. Are you going to just try and go crazy and just get a bunch of victory points? Or are you going to try and build your wonder? Or do you want to build an army and just beat the snot out of each person on either side of you and get victory points that way? There are a number of different ways that you can win at this game. It's not just you need to do this in order to win. It's a great addition to the Seven Wonders library. I mean, this library, you have Seven Wonders, you have Seven Wonders Duel, you have Seven Wonders Architects, plus expansions for all of them. It's a great addition to the library, and it's still very easy to introduce people to this game. Yes. A very entry-level, uh, welcoming kind of game. This is definitely an in-law-approved game. Whenever I saw the box for it the first time, I think I was expecting something a little bit deeper. But a little more grandiose, really yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it still did not disappoint me. This is one of those games that I'm really happy with that is on uh, BGA right now. If you're just sitting around and you have a few minutes here and there, you know what? I'm going to pop on here and play a game. You can have a game done in 15 minutes. Oh, not even. But you can have a game done in five. That's so quick on BGA. It's a great way to just kind of, if you're sitting at work or something and you just get hit that like 2.30, 3 o'clock lull, like, oh boy, still have two hours. No one's watching. I'm going to do this just to <laughs> crank up my mind again. And it's it's a nice thing to just like kind of get your mind working to kind of kickstart your head going again. And play it on your break maybe. I'll tell you what, this yeah. is going to become the de facto, I don't want to say filler game, but it is in that filler time slot. Uh, it is deeper oh, yeah. than a lot of fillers. But man, I could, I could see this being that, okay, guys, we don't have enough time left to play an hour plus game. We need something that's going to provide us with a good quality gaming experience where our decisions matter. Seven Wonders Architects is going to do that. Oh, I love the asymmetry certainly. between each of the, the wonders. Like if you're trying to build the Colossus, you're going to have some benefits to your military. Whereas if you're going for, I think it was the Hanging Gardens, you get some bonuses to sciences. Like you get to take one of those mm -hmm. science upgrade tokens just for continuing to build your wonder. Phenomenal game. Absolutely phenomenal. If you played Raider Seven Wonders, there are different rules to this, but still, it's not one of those things where you feel like you have to learn a completely new rule set to play it. Mm -hmm. It's different enough to give you a different experience, but still same enough 
to not be just like scratching your head trying to figure out what on earth am I actually playing here. I love the idea with the sciences that you have some of them where if you get a certain card, if you draw a brick or a stone, you get, get another, draw another card. card. Oh, yeah. yes. There's one of the victory point cards that has uh, the cat on it where mm-hmm. basically I love it on BGA because it'll meow at you whenever you get it. <laughs> what that does is that gives you the chance to see that mystery deck and flip over that card and take a look and see what that card is. No one else has that ability to look at it. So it gives you some unknown information, gives you a bit of a advance to everyone else playing the game that they don't know. Such simple little things done in it. It's, yeah, this is definitely going to be a, a classic there for a lot of people as one of those. I know people don't really like this uh, terminology sometimes, but it still works. A gateway game to get people into playing games. Hey, adventurers, this is the part when you listen to other shows where they ask you for your money. This is when they tell you they just couldn't make their content without the help of your wallet. At Level Up, we do this because we love gaming and we want to share our thoughts and we want to hear yours. So keep your money and use it to buy some games. We still love your support, though, and the best way to show it is to rate us with five stars in iTunes. We appreciate all the feedback we've had. The input from our listeners has been tremendous, and we can't thank you enough. Our one request is that if you're enjoying the show, the old games and the level back episodes, the adventures on the horizons, interviews with designers of upcoming Kickstarters, reviews, solo adventures, giveaways, the Academy Lost Loot, and more, please take three minutes of your time and give us that five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And now, back to the adventure. Scott, you remember our time at PAX? We spent a lot of time playing Blitzkrieg in the hotel. Nothing like World War II over a bowl of cereal. (laughs) That was good cereal, too. (laughs) Well, as I mentioned last month in our two-player episode, I couldn't help myself but to buy Caesar. Seize Rome in 20 minutes. This is also Paolo Mori. It's 2022 by PSC Games. My pre-order came in and played it a whole bunch. Got in plays with you, plays with Mike, plays with Jason, been playing the heck out of this, and it plays in about 20 minutes for two players. Caesar's sort of the next in line after Blitzkrieg World War II in 20 minutes. In Caesar, though, the theme is the struggle between Caesar and Pompeii. The gameplay is going to have some similarities to Blitzkrieg for those that are familiar. So let's talk about it. Core mechanism of having your tokens in a bag that you draw from, keeping them behind a screen, play one per turn, draw one at the end of turn, that's all still here. What do you think is the main difference between the two games, between World War II and Ancient Rome? Besides just the setting, there's actually a lot. So let's start with what you do with your token on a turn. That's where the game is going to be different and still oh so engaging. Each token has two numbers divided by a line. So picture a circle and put a line right through the middle, as well as a symbol that's basically just going to say whether or not this token can be played in a land space or a sea space or a wild, which can be placed anywhere. Now, pause. Let me explain that map. You've got about a dozen territories which have some open slots like circles for those tokens on the borders, and that's where you're going to be placing Mm. your tokens. So tokens that you have are going to have that line going through the middle, and I might have a token with a sword indicating that it can only be played on land. One side of the token is a four, and the other side is, say, a one. This token goes on the border. So in one area where the four is, my power there is a four. The other location with the one, of course, my power is a one. 
Once all of the border spaces around a territory are occupied, whoever has the highest power in that area gets to score it and put one of their control markers there. Further, and here's where tactics are going to ramp up a bit, regardless of who won it, whoever placed the final border token, whether they won or lost, will get the area's benefit marker. Basically, it's a token that got put there at the start of the game, and it gives that player some benefit moving forward. So like in uh, Blitzkrieg, you place your thing uh, on an industrial complex area, and you got to have an extra token in your hand. Or if you hit the bombing area, you got to remove a token from their hand. This has that too, but it's in the territories. Hmm. Uh, There's even one, it lets you you reverse someone's token. So if I have like a five zero, five in this area, right. zero in that, and you, you can totally reverse that. So now I have zero in that area where I had five. Very profound. A lot of fun that was. Looking at the two, which one do you think you like better? Oh, I'm going to – that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Blitzkrieg. I'm going to go with Blitzkrieg. I really liked Caesar. Oh, I I should point out the game ends. uh, We're placing those area control markers whenever we have the dominance in an area. Each player starts the game with 12 of those markers. So the first person to place their 12th wins the game. I think I like Blitzkrieg a little bit more, and I think it's strictly because of theme. I think that the World War II theme caught me a little bit more than the uh, the, the Caesar versus Pompeii. Okay. And you know what else? Blitzkrieg is always going to bring up those fond memories, just chilling in the hotel oh, at yeah. PAX, you know, BS and talking some board game talk with you. It's got that going for it, too. I think if we reverse it and I played Caesar first and that was our, our game <laughs> of the con, uh, pre and post con, then, then I'd be the opposite. But Caesar was fantastic. It's tactically deep. And quite frankly, it does play in 20 minutes. That, that seems really cool. It does seem to be a much more tactical game as far as placing your markers out on the borders and being able to turn them around and switch where your troops are. That's a really neat mechanic. Definitely going to have to give a try for this game. Yeah, it's it's tactically rich, and yet there is some longer-term strategy. What with those tokens? One of the tokens that you can pick up, Scott, it's got the Senate building on it. Okay. And essentially, when you pick it up, it doesn't do anything. But moving forward, if you're going to place a token, you also get to place another token underneath each Senate building you've collected. So I might not have placed any of my tokens yet, but I may have collected two Senate buildings Okay. So moving forward, anytime I place a token, I get to place two more. So I'm moving at like triple speed. Oh, wow. They have some area control elements where if you take an area and you already controlled an area that's adjacent to it, you get to put another one of your tokens down. So the game does ramp up. There's reason to focus on an area. There's reason to go for certain tokens. And it's going to change game after game, just like Blitzkrieg did. Really like this. That's Caesar. Seize Rome in 20 minutes. Sounds good. Sounds good, sir. Oh, my God. We're going to have to renew his contract after episode 50, (laughs) aren't we? We've got the top 100. Scott, there's not a whole lot to uh, to report here. Our biggest one is that we have a debut. A game has breached the top 100. That is The Crew. Mission Deep Sea sits at spot 100. New highest peaks. Eclipse. Second on for the galaxy is up to number 31. Too Many Bones is at 37. Pandemic Legacy Season Zero is up to 73, and the crew, Mission Deep Sea, as we mentioned, has made it into the top 100 at the 100 slot. 
pretty gosh darn impressive. Just seeing the crew creep in the top 100, that's fantastic seeing new blood coming it in. It took it all of one month. My goodness. <laughs> Scott, we've got a giant review, so why don't we save our Nemesis and Nemesis Lockdown stuff for the end of the episode. We had a pretty cool solo game come to us that I think adventurers are going to want to hear about this one. Do you want to go to Solo Land? Let's do it. Back in Solo Land. We haven't been here for a while, Scott. we got to kick some cobwebs oh, off the corners of the ceiling. Well, Scott, we come back into Solo Land because Side Room Games gave us a copy of Four Northwood, a one-player game that takes about 20 to 30 minutes, designed by Wilhelm Sue. Scott, Four Northwood is the winner of the Best Overall Game and Jury Prize in the 2021 BGG 54 Card Contest, also winner of Best Art, Best Solo Game, and Best New Designer. So we've got some pedigree coming into this one. They shipped it to me. Let's talk about what BGG says about Four Northwood. It's a solo precision trick-taking game. Your objective is to peacefully unify the Kingdom of Northwood through conversations with their rulers. Now, over eight rounds, you must visit eight animal thieves and engage their rulers in dialogue or tricks mechanically in the game. Each ruler suit represents the trump for that thief. Each ruler also requires you to win an exact number of tricks in order to join your alliance. So the game gets harder as your options dwindle. How do we play the game here? How do we have conversations with the different thieves? Well, to set up, you've got a little signpost card with a 0 through 3 on the left and a 4 through 7 on the right. And you put the four scoring cards on each side of the signpost. And then you put a ruler, which, well, a ruler card, one of these animals over top of each of the score cards. So signpost in the middle, four cards on either side. The game revolves around the remaining 32 cards, each with a number and a suit. And the flow of the game is quite simple. You're going to draw eight cards from that deck into your hand and you pick which one of those eight rulers you want to engage with, engage in dialogue with. The important thing to note about the ruler that you select is their suit and their target number, as indicated by that signpost in the middle that we put there at the start of the game. So if I pick the ruler to the immediate left of the signpost, my goal is to win three tricks. So how do we win a trick? Simple, you're going to flip over the top card of the remaining deck of cards and say it's a two of leaves. You got to follow suit if able, like you would in any other trick-taking game. And if you play the higher card, you win the trick. The card that you played goes into the I scored pile. If you don't win the trick, it just goes into the discard, and that's fine. Then you just continue by flipping up the next card for the next trick, and you'll continue playing tricks until either the deck or your hand has been depleted. And at this point, you're going to count how many tricks you won, indicated by the number of cards in your score pile, of course. And here's where the game went to the next level for me. You have to have the exact number of cards in your score pile. So in our example, with the ruler in the three slot, I need to win exactly three tricks. So when I first set this up and play it, I was just winning each trick I could. But before I knew it, I was at the three but my hand wasn't empty. Mm -hmm. So I had to keep going. And you know what? I still had a five in my hand. I still had a five of leaves and oh crap, the top card is a two of leaves. Oh, I won that trick. So I actually lost this ruler. Now for Northwood wasn't done surprising me yet though. At the start of the game, the four jacks in the deck represented by little critters, they're your starting allies and they each have their own ability. Draw two, then discard two, for example. Each round, those allies are allowed to be used once each. 
And I'm telling you what, Scott, this introduced a ton of agency for me, the player. It took the game from being a little luck-driven, kind of like a playing war with the top of the deck, to being able to manipulate your hand. If I win or lose it for Northwood, I feel like I earned it. Either way. We got one more excellent design decision here. When you win a round against a ruler, they become available to you as an ally. So each ruler has their own ability on it, and once per game, not round, but once per game, you can swap out one of those jacks for one of the rulers that has joined your allegiance, uh, that you've won. And in an upcoming round, you get to use their ability. If you win the round, the ruler's now an ally. You actually slide it down over the scoring card, and it says, for Northwood. If you lose, you just flip it upside down to indicate that you lost. Lost. So after eight rounds of play, you're going to look at each scorecard underneath the rulers that you've won. See, three of those eight cards have a star under them. And if you got all three stars, you won the game. If not, you've lost. Simple card game, charming art, charming theme, and a lot of skill involved. Now, Scott, you wanted to borrow this one. I was showing it to you at the shop and you're like, okay, I'm taking this with me. <laughs> Tell me, what'd you think about for Northwood? Well, number one, I would say that if we didn't have to uh, send this on to another reviewer, it would be staying in my collection. And number two, I need to talk to these guys to find out exactly how I can get a copy of this, like, right now. Oh, my God. Whenever we first you told me about this game, you said it was from Sideroom Games. And it was like something in my mind. I'm like, wait, that sounds so familiar. Why can't I put it together? I went to the internets to the internets <laughs> looked it up and they did black sonata oh, well yep. that one is just freaking awesome i mean the little hole trying to put things together but wait they did maki i absolutely adore that game um that's one of your old favorites oh yeah and i'm like well i mean they got good things going for them then this one comes out i'm a huge fan of the old game euchre getting the tricks following the suit this almost felt like playing Euchre Solitaire, and it was mm -hmm. fabulous. It just made me feel so happy and warm inside. But the thing that went on even more was the ability to use the Baron of Claws or the Queen of Eyes or the Lady of Leaves to give you extra things, to switch things around, to win the number of things that you have or lose the number of tricks that you would get. The idea of having the crossroads with the zero to seven on there, you have to play a whole round and win nothing. I'm sorry. I mean, it's one thing to play hard and to win a trick, but to play hard to make sure you lose. I truly cannot say more about this game that I absolutely adored this game. It looks kiddified a little bit with the, the little animals wearing hats and all this stuff. It's very cute kind of artwork to it. But my God, there is one hell of a game behind this thing here. I absolutely loved it. Side Room Games, email me. Let me know what I did. You know what? Shop and take my money. That's all I got to say. You got it. I want this game. It was that good. You know what that art you you said it's kind of kidified. It it is charming art. It's got like a like really pleasant little animals, oh, yeah. almost like teddy bear looking animals. And it's the kind of art that I would normally look at and be like, oh come on. But I tell you what, that thing showed up in the mail, our review copy, and I showed it to my wife. She's like, I'm playing this. 
<laughs> the first person to play the review copy was my wife. She's she's a casual, very casual gamer. I feel like she'll play a game whenever I make her play a game with me. It showed up. It's a solo game. And she was yeah. like, I'm setting it up and playing it. So I was recording the last episode with you. She was upstairs figuring out how to play for Northwood. So whenever I finished, she's like, okay, here's how you play. Check this out. Watch this. And I was like, oh, and I knew you were going to love it. I knew it. So a little peek behind the curtain. Whenever we get one of these review games in, we have to send it on to the next reviewer. Mm-hmm. Which we had to do. So I let you borrow it, and I said, "Well, Scott, I'm gonna I'm gonna message you later and let you know where to send it next. Uh, whoever was to receive it next, we're sorry, uh, I forgot." <laughs> <laughs> So I I messaged Dustin, the the gentleman that provided us the game. He's like, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm a week behind. I forgot to get this sent. I almost, I was considering blaming you, Scott. I was oh. going to be like, you know what? I gave it to my co-host. I gave him the address. He told me he didn't get over there. <laughs> I was going to blame COVID. <laughs> No, nope. uh, that's a phenomenal game. I'm so glad that you liked it. I'm really looking forward to getting my copy. It's it's the kind of game that I would think I would play and then shelf it and be like, okay, I got it on the show. I'm not playing it anymore. I want to play it again. My biggest thing here is that whenever things start going again in April, when I start traveling for work a lot more, this is going in my bag. No question. This goes along with a couple other games bottom of the ninth i usually try and take that with me like mint works or something a lot of these little solo games this one here is going to be planted right in there yeah i cannot say more about this game this will definitely be going in my travel bag for every travel i do no questions asked and scott if you're anything like me you couldn't help it when you win a ruler and you slide it down and it shows that text what do you say for For northwood Howdy, howdy, adventurers, and welcome to today's episode of Lost Loot, the part of the show where you and me get to sit down and talk about games that are ranked below 1,000 on BGG. My name is Josh, and oh my heck, do I have a treat for you today. I have recently returned from TantrumCon, a board game convention that has taken place in Charlotte, North Carolina, not too long ago. TantrumCon is a relatively smaller size convention, which probably five to 800 people show up and just play games together. I won't go into too much detail about my adventures besides the games I've played, but I will say I had a fantastic time here, and I can't wait to go back again with my wife and kids. Moving on, let's get down to the nitty gritty because I have a lot to talk about today, because I had not one... Not two, but three games I want to talk to you about today that I experienced and played over my weekend in Charlotte at TantrumCon. So because of this, I won't be able to go into too much detail as I usually do into the games and why I love them, but I'm going to give you all a quick overview and why I think each of these games are Lost Loot and why I recommend them. So here are my top three, in no particular order, Lost Loot games that I found at my weekend at TantrumCon. The first game I would like to talk about was published in 2018. It's a kid's game, and surprisingly enough, it's also a roll-and-move game, and surprisingly more enough, it's a pick-up-and-deliver game. Now, those two mechanics themselves might turn people away, but just stick around. It's going to be worth it as I tell you more about it. This game is called Echidna Shuffle, produced and designed by Chris Gold, and published by What's a Palog Games. In the game of Echidna Shuffle, players take control of a bunch of echidnas, and... This is, I'm just going to stop here. The echidnas in the game are actual little plastic toys. This game is purely a kid's game, but there is a huge toy factor and they have the most adorable little echidnas you have ever seen in a board game. These are easily in a list of the top 10 echidnas in board games, number one. 
In the game of Echidna Shuffle, you take control of echidnas who are trying to collect bugs and take them to each player's separate logs. Each player will get a log of their color and roll some dice and try to move their echidnas from a place where they can get the bugs back to their log. Now, on paper, this may sound pretty boring, but in practice, it actually works out really well. When you roll the dice, you actually don't move the number of spaces on the die you roll. Instead, you go to a small chart and it tells you how many you roll from there. Then on the next turn, you will roll the number of pips you rolled on the last turn, so on and so forth throughout the game. What's that make this even more interesting is that the board has directional arrows that guide you in how you can move your echidna. And since there are about 12 or 13 echidnas on a board at a time, it's actually a pretty neat little puzzle how to figure out how to move around the echidnas and what echidnas you need to move. Because you can't pass through a space if there's already another echidna there. And since all the players share the echidnas, it's a matter of trying to maneuver the echidnas and try to get back to your log. Now, the reason I love this is because it's a game I can play with my little kid. My son is one years old, and he just loved picking up an echidna and playing with it while me and my wife had a good time. I could easily see this playing with, you know, even three or five-year-olds who have a kind of a grip on gaming. It's super fun. The toy factor is incredible. The art direction is amazing. And honestly, the mechanics are pretty solid. I particularly don't really enjoy roll and move games or pick up and deliver games, but together, my mouth gets kind of sour. But the designer of this game made an excellent kids game. It's a great gateway game for young children who want to play with some toys and have a good time collecting, you know, butterflies and bugs. Super fun if you have children or even if you just want to see this at a convention play with some cool components, a kid in a shuffle is for you. The next game I would like to talk about is one of the games I was able to try solo, and that is Space Park. Space Park is designed by Henry Audubon and published by Keymaster Games. In Space Park, players play as explorers traveling the galaxy in a certain amount of rockets, trying to collect gems and different other materials to become the world's, well, not even the world, trying to become the galaxy's next great explorer. This is a very, very simple action cue rondelle game where you are trying to collect sets of crystals and other different materials to achieve cards that will give you points. Whoever has the most points at the end of the game wins. Now, I played this solo and it was slightly different in the aspect where you're trying to race against a deck. There's an AI in the game that you're trying to beat, you're trying to get to a certain amount of points before the AI actually mills the deck where there's nothing left. And I actually really enjoyed the solo version of this. I didn't think I would, I just grabbed it because I had some time in between my wife doing a painting class and me just kind of hanging out with my son. And I put it down because I'd seen it in my game store, but I looked past it because I wasn't really interested in this kind of small box game at the moment I was looking at it. But I put it down, opened up, and I was really impressed with the artwork. But it's very, it's like very neon retro, super groovy type space artwork. The action mechanics are pretty fun. You have three rockets on the board, and the rockets represent where you can actually go to perform actions. And if you choose to perform an action on that rocket, you gain the resources that are on that space the rocket is on, and then you move the rocket to the next available space, jumping over any rockets that are in the way. So as a solo game, this provides a neat little puzzle that you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do in order to make sure I get the best materials for this contract card that I have, and so that I can next turn maneuver the rockets to get to my next coin that I need, without wasting too much time, because every turn a card is going away and that deck is getting milled, and plus the little stupid AI robot is making you pay every time you land on one of its spaces. Overall, I had a great time with this because it was just a neat little puzzle that I could play by myself in 10 minutes or less. And with the components as quality as they are, because you had like nice little rocket miniatures, 
I really had a good time. I was cracking crystals. I was filling contracts. I really had to stop and think at some points to make sure I was doing the right moves and I wouldn't actually make a huge mistake. And I recommend this as a solo experience. I can't speak for the multiplayer experience, but for any solo gamers out there, this is a nice little 10 to 20 minute experience that you can throw down during a lunch break, during in between, I don't know, in between your other games, and have a good time with. Space Park. The last game I want to talk about is Unicorn Fever, released in 2020 and designed by Lorenzo Silva and Lorenzo Tucci Sorrentino, and released by Horrible Guild. In Unicorn Fever, each player is a wealthy better, determined to be recognized as the most skillful unicorn race wagerer of the Unicorn Racing Championship, and hold the title until the next rainbow appears. During four races, players will try to play successful bets to gain victory points and gold. To reach their goal, they will buy contracts with unscrupulous citizens of the fairy realm to hire their services and turn the odds of the race in their favor, play magic cards to straight up fix it, and try to avoid squandering all their hard-earned gold and be forced to ask the elf mob for loans. At the end of the championship, the player with the most victory points will be the winner. Unicorn Viewer first caught my attention a long time ago, but I just been unable to play it. The art in this game, which usually attracts me to a game in the first place, is the most derpy art I've ever seen in my entire life. I looked at derpy unicorns on the front cover and I was immediately hooked. I'm not a unicorn guy, I'm really not, but I really liked the art because it made the, it was just a bunch of chubby little horses with horns coming out of the heads. What's not to love about that? That to me just sounds like a really good time. And it was. The fun of it comes from not the betting itself, but fixing the race. So with these contract cards of different fairies, you're able to do different abilities and be able to provide different skills to these horses to either help them or negate them. So there's a lot of take that in this game. But the cool part about it is that the take that doesn't feel as bad because you're also trying to bluff your way into making your horses stand out and eventually win the race. There's all sorts of things to consider. There's the, what are the odds of your horses actually winning the race? What horses do you actually own in the race that are going to get you more money? Do you want to place a show bet? Do you want to place a win bet? What's the biggest risk? What's the biggest payoff? There's a lot to consider for a really simple game on the surface. For what looks to be a kid's game, I think this game could go unnoticed because of the cutesy, artsy, fartsy theme on the front of it. I really recommend that if you like racing games and betting games and large player count games, to give this a try. The miniatures are fantastic. The artwork is fantastic. The components are great. Unicorn Fever. Well, now that I've talked about all the games, I'm going to do an audible on y'all and say, scratch that. I'm going to give you my top three in order from least to greatest what I enjoy the most in these games. Coming in at number three with a rank of 2,554 is Space Park. I like Space Park, I like production, but I don't see myself wanting to play this beyond the solo mode. I really enjoyed the solo mode and I thought it was a great little puzzle for me to scratch my brain to, but I don't think I would nearly enjoy it much as multiplayer. Number two, coming at a rank of 4,378 is Echidna Shuffle. This is a great game, great components, lovely little theme, Lovely mechanics, simple to understand. You will have yourself a great time with your kids. And if you have a party of adults, it's just a great little palate cleanser before you jump into maybe your brass Birmingham's or blood rages. And lastly, coming in at a rank of 2,376 is Unicorn Fever. I really love this game. I want to find it. If anyone has a copy and is willing to sell it to me, try to find me because I will more than definitely try to buy it off of you. Great miniatures, 
Great concept, great execution of theme. It is lovely. If you are a fan of derpy unicorns or even just a fan of racing games, this will be in your wheelhouse. Unicorn Fever, my number one game over the weekend. Now that's going to do it for here at Lost Loot. Thank you all so much for tuning and listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Patrick Scott, thanks for letting me talk about more than one game for once. I appreciate it. I remember adventurers, when you're at a convention and you're trying out all the latest hotness, look behind the hotness and maybe to the smaller shelves in the library. You never know when you might find some lost loot. Into the unknown. I'm sorry, I love that transition music. <laughs> Boy, we got three lost loot today. Have you heard of any of these? I know I've heard of Space Park before. That is in turn with Keymaster. They did a game I still love, Parks. They do a great job of everything, of putting things out and doing really great looking artwork. The bits they have, really tremendous put together. It, it looks like a lot of fun. And the other two... I mean, it kind of coincides with what we just said about for Northwood. Don't be put off by the cute little looking things and think that it's a kiddish game. There's definitely great games that have cutesy artwork that you don't expect. So don't judge a game by its cover. I looked a bit into that Echidna Shuffle, and one of the things that stood out amongst the people that commented on BGG, one of them said, this is a kid's game in the sense that Checkers is a kid's game. It's easy to understand, but there is actually some depth here. Not that Checkers Mm. is the most deep game out there, but his point is, it's not a game that you're going to win just by random luck. Anyone can understand it. You still got to play well. And that's the kind of game that usually piques my interest. What's the saying? They say it'll take five minutes to learn, but a lifetime to master. Well, Josh, thank you for today's Lost Loot, and I look forward to talking with you in episode 51, all about feuds and favors. So, adventurers, keep your ears open. We'll have Josh back with us in a couple days. Scott, we've got a giant review today. We're going to look at Nemesis and Nemesis Lockdown, kind of like a double review comparison deal. You ready for this? Oh, yep, that was me cracking my knuckles. I'm raring to go. Designed by Adam Kwapinski and published by Awaken Realms in 2018, Nemesis is a semi-cooperative game of discovery and hand management in a sci-fi horror setting. 2021 saw the release of Nemesis Lockdown, a sequel of sorts which incorporates similar gameplay in a slightly modified setting. Now, as we're doing a double review of Nemesis and Nemesis Lockdown, this walkthrough will feature the gameplay from Nemesis, followed by some of the differences introduced by Lockdown. Nemesis takes place on the spaceship that the game is named after. The game board features this vessel and the rooms within. Each player is going to start the game with a character board, plus that character's associated 10-card deck, as well as their character mini placed in the cryo-chamber space in the middle of the board. See, the theme here is that the characters wake up with some sort of amnesia to find a body in the cryo-sleep room, and they need to figure out a way to safety. Let's talk about how the game is won. Before play begins, players are dealt two objective cards. These cards outline the ways which you can win the game. I may have a card that says I need to survive, plus I need the ship to reach Earth. My other card might simply say player three cannot survive. We got two cards because at some point in the game, you're going to have to discard one. 
committing to it as your means of winning the game. Yes, this means that one player can win, multiple players can win, or no one. When we set the board on the table, each hexagonal space within represents a room. These are set up randomly from a stack of rooms, so while some rooms are going to show up in every game, others might not, and where they're located is going to vary from one place to the next. Each room also gets a face-down token representing the status of the room when it's discovered. This simply means that if I move into an undiscovered room, say the laboratory, and the token has a slime icon, I got slimed! These tokens also have a number depicting how many items can be discovered in that room using the search action. The tokens are placed randomly, so you never know what might occur. So what's happening on a player turn? Well, at the start of the round, each player draws a five-card hand, and on your turn, you may perform two actions or pass. The actions you can take are basic actions, such as movement or combat, or card actions, which are spelled out on the cards in your hand. The mechanism used here for action payment is discarding cards. This means if I want to play a card that costs one, I have to discard a card to pay for it. Simple. One of the regularly selected actions in the game is going to be movement. This is a simple means of moving to an adjacent space, but it also includes the noise mechanism by which aliens, <clears throat> I mean um, intruders, might appear. When a player moves their mini, they roll a 10-sided die, which indicates where a noise token is going to be placed. See, every room has the numbers 1 through 4 in the hallways adjacent to it. If I move into that laboratory and I roll a 3, well, I'm going to place a noise token there. Any time a noise token would be placed where there already is one, then instead, all of the adjacent noise tokens are removed, and an intruder is spawned. After players run out of cards or actions to perform and they've all passed, there's a game turn too where the intruders are going to have the opportunity to attack players and events are going to resolve. Afterwards, players draw back up to a hand of five cards and the next round begins. The game ends when all players are either defeated or have moved off the board. Now, we try not to convolute our walkthroughs with all of the details within the game, but there are a few that I would like to mention for Nemesis. First, at some point in the game, usually as the result of an attack, you might find yourself infected. This mechanism involves taking an infection card and adding it to your deck. It has scrambled text at the bottom of the card that can only be read when inserted into a scanner. And this is actually a double-layered cardboard tile that has a red screen on it. This can be important to determine if you're infected at the end of the game. Met your objective and got out safely? Well, that's great, but if you're infected, you may still not win. Second, some of the objectives require the use of various rooms, such as the engine room or the cockpit. These rooms are printed on the board, and they're always available. Finally, the game allows for table talk. If my objective is to have the nemesis destroyed, I might check an engine and see that it's malfunctioning. Other players might not have time to get to the engine room, so I might reassure them that all is well and don't worry, the engine is just fine. Now there's a bit more to Nemesis than what I've briefly outlined here, but hopefully this gives you a sense of what sort of game it is. Now, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about Nemesis Lockdown. The primary takeaway that I want you to gather is that mechanically this is quite similar to base Nemesis. The bag of intruders, the noise mechanism, two objectives per player, the 10 card hands, and the basic actions, they're all functionally the same. So what's the difference? Well, thematically, you're no longer on a ship, but instead players find themselves on a Mars military base, represented by a board depicting the multiple levels of the base, as well as the Mars surface. 
First and foremost, there's an elevator that can be used in the base. It's simply a miniature board that sits next to an entry room on a given level of the base. When a player moves into it, they activate it and they can slide it up or down the board to the level desired. Second, Lockdown takes the computer action from base Nemesis and makes it more interesting. You see, in regular Nemesis, some rooms have a computer icon, and while you're in those rooms, you might have the ability to perform an action that has that icon. In Lockdown, there's a deck of cards specifically for the computer. The top card is always revealed, outlining the options a player may perform when they take the computer action. When you resolve the action, a new card from that deck becomes available. The third change, and perhaps most influential, is the play on electrical power within the facility. As the game progresses, power can be lost, and players are going to want to find ways to restore and maintain it. This includes a space on the board where you can restore power, and another where you can alter which rooms are powered or not. The impact on gameplay here is that if a player is in an unpowered section of the board, the intruder, or in the case of lockdown, the Night Stalker attacks, are more dangerous. Further, various actions cannot be performed when you find yourself in an unpowered room. The fourth difference I want to outline is the contingency procedure. You see, the powers that be, they're aware that things have gone haywire at this base. When they show up, what are they going to do? Perhaps they don't want to take any chances and just kill everything within. Maybe they want to save everyone in the confinement room. The game implements this mechanism through the use of tokens stating what will happen. With negotiation around the table, or various actions that you can take, you'll have to deduce what that final stipulation is going to be. See, you can meet your objectives and lock yourself in the confinement room, only to find out that when the corporation shows up, they intend to wipe out the entire base. The final difference I want to highlight is the use of a knowledge mechanism. Players will have the ability to gain knowledge through their various actions and choices. This is most impactful in utilizing alien weaknesses, but it often comes into play with objective cards too. There are other subtle differences, as well as some expected changes, such as the characters being different, some changes in their decks, and new different events and attack cards. But again, I want to stress that the gameplay in Lockdown is still quite similar to Nemesis. So, perhaps you missed the train the first time around with Nemesis, a game that got red hot and rose into the BGG Top 20 at a blazing pace. Maybe you're considering adding Lockdown to change up the experience a bit. Well, let's do this level up style and give the 8-bit breakdown to today's review games, Nemesis and Nemesis Lockdown. It started like countless times before. Waking up in a cold fog within the hibernatorium, at the very center of the ship. As usual, we were suffering from temporary amnesia due to FTL travel and hibernation. We knew our names, and we had some basic memories, but didn't remember clearly what we were, where we were, what we were supposed to do. Layout of the ship felt unfamiliar. We knew that somewhere at the stern there were three engines. Somewhere in the back there was a bridge. Uh, we're also conditioned to remember the location of two escape pods, just in case someone really wrong. Oh, the rest is blurry. But this time, amnesia wasn't our only problem. So one of our comrades was lying in his pod, with a gaping hole in his chest. Emergency lights were flashing all over the place. 
thank you, Patrick, for the run-through on Nemesis and Nemesis Lockdown. And uh, you know how we like to do this. We like to break it down in an 8-bit breakdown. And we have this set up once again. But I think we might do it a little bit differently. Do you want to do it that way? Yeah, I think maybe the best way to do this, Scott, would be to, like, for bit number one, art and components. We'll look at both and we'll try and point out differences where they come in. You know what? We'll add a ninth okay. bit. Which one do you prefer? Do you need to own both? Sort of a recap since we're doing a, a two first. That Sound sounds good? good to me. So why don't you lead us off then? Art and components. Ah, hey, let me tell you what. Whenever you get a stack of games that's the size of, oh, I'd say um, a good-sized toddler, uh, you know <laughs> you're going to have a lot of components. <laughs> and this one does. It has a lot of components to it. There's the alien figures. There are the figures of what you're actually doing, uh, the characters that you're playing. You've got a ton of tokens. You've got a ton of cards. You've got so many things in this. The artwork really paints the picture and really brings the theme across. It's not happy-go-lucky Empire and Star Wars where everything's clean and pristine. No, 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 no. You're not on those kind of ships. Uh-uh, that's not this kind of universe. Both of them, I think, do a great job of getting that feeling with, with the components, with the artwork. The aliens are just a little bit different in each one. I mean, mm -hmm. sure, the first one, it was like, oh, well, this kind of looks like a little bit of Tyranid meets the Xenomorph thing. In lockdown, I can't really put my finger on exactly what they remind me of, but... I I don't want to run into one of them in a dark alley. I can tell you that much. <laughs> what did you think about them? So there are some games that are at the top of the line when it comes to art and components. And these are the games that other games aspire to be. These are games that spoil us with their presentation from the box cover all the way down to the dice. Nemesis has beautiful cards for each character and some of the best minis that you can get in a board game. They have top notch components from the inside scott you know original nemesis there's a little thing inside the box that you it's like a cardboard assembly and it's supposed to be like a display stand and you're mm -hmm. supposed to put your nemesis game on it and take a picture and share it on social media that's how good that's how good the art oh, components yes. are here they're fantastic absolutely fantastic one thing that lockdown did differently from original nemesis now nemesis you deal some damage to one of the intruders you're going to put the little red cubes to demonstrate that you've dealt a damage so mm -hmm. sometimes you have an alien with like five cubes and it needs to move and you're like uh-oh <laughs> so you pick it up and your cubes inevitably fall off they gave dials in lockdown so you just place a dial with the one on it and then you deal two damage you just tick it up to a three and you just keep the dial next to the alien it's almost like they acknowledge it okay this could have been done better aside from that i can't think of many areas for improvement i absolutely love the art and components so let's go to theme and immersion and let's get this out of the way uh, everybody's heard reviews of nemesis by now we all know it's alien the board oh it's the non-ip infringing alien okay we know that we know that uh, we'll say lockdown is on well, the big difference, Lockdown's on a base. It's like a, a mm -hmm. Mars facility as opposed to on a ship. Maybe that's more like a Aliens. What's the one that they had the whole squad and they had the one chick with the giant gun? Was um, that Alien? Um, that was two, right? Well, they had that, but also Doom was one where they went to Mars and they were fighting off demons. So they were kind of crawling through the different parts, the, the cave. I kind of thought it felt like more like Doom 
than it did an alien movie. Well, nevertheless, the theme of lockdown is that you're in a base and aliens are a happening and that's bad. And you got to get out of here. Again, though, the theme here, uh, just like the art and the components, it is entirely off the charts. It's all tied together with the objective cards, where each player has a, their own objective, their personal objective, and then also a corporate objective, which sometimes can be a little bit selfish. Now, these cards are thematic just in their text alone and what they do, but the game triggers you to discard one when the first intruder appears. And it's like, oh, crap, stuff just got real. I got, I got mm -hmm. skin in the game now. I'm looking out for myself now, or I really need to commit to this objective. Because of that, you can't help but be suspicious of everyone. You can picture the ship, the engines, the room covered in slime. You flip over that card, and it's the nest. How about that scanner? for your infections. Whenever mm, you take on oh, infection yes. cards, so you can't read them. You got to put them in that little scanner. You know what that reminded me of? What's that? The Petri dish in the thing. Oh, you remember when they're yes, all sitting there yes. and they're like roped to the bench and he's, he's putting the flame down into the Petri dish. That's what, that's what it's emulating. I don't know that I can think of a game that's more immersive than Nemesis and Nemesis Lockdown. They put me right into the boots of my character every time I play. I will partially agree with you on that oh. in nemesis yes i was into that completely wholeheartedly the whole idea of having your goal that you need to do and then having like a secondary goal that was a lot of fun my whole thing was i had to get off the ship and let everyone else die that was the only thing i had to worry about you needed to be the there. only survivor yes in lockdown I needed to make sure, once again, that everyone else died. But my biggest problem was that it seemed, and, and this is going to sound kind of silly, but it seemed like that took such a back seat to just surviving in lockdown. In Nemesis, I felt I had, there was a chance to, to win through, win that game. Mm -hmm. I had a chance, and I loved the idea of crawling through the ship. You just had the one level, but you're going through all the different ships. You had the uh, escape pods on the side. You had to check the engines. You had to do all these different things. With lockdown, you had to go and check all the different things, but then the power outages could do things. So it's it's taking things out. I could feel the immersion, but where Nemesis made me feel like I'm on the ship fighting to accomplish my goal, mm -hmm. Lockdown just made me feel like I'm just trying my best not to die. You Period. know what Lockdown did that got me into the, the theme, like that got me immersed into it, is that stupid elevator. So you've got three floors of the underground base, and you can base, facility, and you can move the elevator. It's just a little tile off to the side of the board, and mm -hmm. it can go to any one of three locations. <laughs> It felt so good. Like you get out the elevator. I'm going to activate the elevator. Boo. Boo. And you slide the car down to where you want mm -hmm. it to stop. And it feels like you're actually going deeper into the base. I actually really like that. But more so for immersion is the fact that the game tells a story every time. First time I played this, I was playing with Jason and Ryan and one of our buddies. And I'm telling you what, man, the fire spread. And we, the ship went down because the whole thing got consumed in fire. And you could see it happening. And then an event happened. It said, anywhere that there's fire, spread it. The fire goes to all adjacent rooms. We're like, oh, crap. The ship done just blowed up. Game over, man. It's game over. Next time we were playing, Ryan was the only person that got off the ship. He's in his escape pod. He's leaving, and he has to scan the infection card. 
And he does, in fact, have one that says infected. So he shuffles his deck top four and there's an infection card. So Ooh. he lost and you can picture it. There he is on his escape pod. Like, <laughs> chest bursts open, alien comes out. And it's like, oh man, what a story. Then we were playing Nemesis Lockdown. Ryan, I'm sorry, it happened to him again. He was the only one that survived. He went into that confinement room in the middle. Now Lockdown has the deduction element of, okay, what's the corporation going to do when they show up here? Are they going to save everybody that's in the base? One of the cards is kill everyone in that room, in that safe room. Mm -hmm. And that's where Ryan decided to hunker down. He's like, well, I got a 50-50 shot. I know five of those seven tokens. I just got to hope that it's not the one. Corporate showed up, gassed the whole place, kill everything in it. And Ryan was in there. So twice, twice he earned the win and the game showed up and said, "Uh uh-uh. But you can picture that. There's this abandoned base that the corporation knows that crap went down there and they show up and they're like, well, do we want to take it? No, no, just gas it, nuke it. It's done. You can tell the story every time. I think I need to move on to the next bit to really kind of differentiate some things here. Sure. Do you mind if we go to bit number three with complexity? The floor is yours. All right. In Nemesis, yes, you have a complex game. You're going through there trying to escape the alien menace that's growing on the ship. It's Mm -hmm. slowly starting to consume the ship. You don't know who's on your side. You don't know what the other players want to do. It's difficult. In Lockdown, you have that feeling as well, too. But then let's throw in that, well, we have an elevator that you may have to sit there and wait to get it to you. You may have to wait for the electricity to come back on. Mm -hmm. You may have to wait for this. And you're just sitting there, not really doing anything and waiting and waiting. It almost seemed like they put more things in to make a game more complex than it needed to be. I think if they would have kept things relatively similar to the first one and making it easier to get through the compound that you're in, I think it would have been more fun than adding these extra things in there to make it more complex than it needed to be. Having to wait for an elevator to come up there. Sure, you can take your way down and walk down through the elevator shaft. But then if you're doing that, what's the point of having the elevator, really? Well, it's it's a couple moves less, a, a few fewer actions to do it. But I get your point. You're saying it's slow moving to get through the base. Yes. So you're just sitting there and it's just like... This is basically Alien Massacre. It's just one of those things. You are basically, you know you're going to die. You're canned meat. Yep. Yes, yes. And I never felt like I had a chance of actually winning this thing. It was just, how long can I go before I die? I know know the end thing will be, I am going to be dead. I will give you that I thought lockdown was a little bit more difficult. But as far as complexity goes, I didn't think that it was that much more complex. The layout of either game is that you have action allocations. So anything that you want to do has some number of action points required. Your basic actions are listed on your player board. They're pretty self-explanatory. And then several of your cards are going to have some number of actions that you need, uh, action points that you need to spend in order to use them. And in Mm. order to get action points, you just discard cards. Most of that I thought was pretty intuitive, where there is a little bit of complexity. Uh, Okay, there's a lot of rooms on that ship, and a lot of them have keywords and actions. And same thing with in lockdown. There are several different rooms. Like, okay, how do I destroy the nest? Where is it? What does it mean to be slimed? And you know what I found? These are all questions that are best answered 
during the first playthrough. So when I teach Nemesis, or now Lockdown to players, I give them the very basics. And if they're wondering what it means to be slimed, I tell them, you know, you'll see. If -hmm. they're wondering what it means to craft an item, I say, okay, now I'll explain it. Oh, this room happened. Let's flip it up. And now I'm going to explain what this room is. You can tell them like the basic objectives. Okay, guys, here's how you get out. Here's how you check the engines. Here's how you mess with the power. But beyond that, you just kind of let the game happen. And this is a game that happens to players. You're not... Oftentimes, you're not going to be able to think your way out of a situation. Sometimes the game just happens to you. Holy cow, in lockdown, some of those cards, when you run away from an intruder in Nemesis, you run away and they get to swipe at you, which means you flip a top card and something bad happened. In lockdown, some of those cards say, and the alien followed you into the room that you went Mm -hmm. to. Holy punishing, that's tough. Anyway, coming full circle to complexity, I I do find that the puzzle sort of unveils itself. So things like sending the signal. Oh, that's in the signal room. You don't have to teach all that up front. It happens and players start to grasp it. And it's a game that commonly, once one playthrough is done, everybody at the table goes, okay, let's play. Now let's, let's really sink our teeth into this thing. Let's talk rulebook and learning curve. I'll do the rulebook since I think I taught both of these over the last several months. I didn't love the rulebooks, but I didn't hate them either. This is a game that has a lot going on, and they did what they could to put things into specific sections. So if you're in an encounter, ideally you can flip to the section about an encounter. But from there, it could have been a little bit more user-friendly, had a little bit of difficulty with it. I typically don't do well with Awakened Realms rulebooks. They hit all the checkpoints that we look for, like, okay, it has examples, it's colorful, it has corresponding numbers for setup and whatnot. But for me, they're always a little bit tricky. They do give some excellent player aids for the rooms on the ship. Uh, They are two-sided, and it is a full sheet, uh, so you typically only ever need to see what's nearby your character, but there is a lot to, uh, to, to glean from the rulebook. How about the learning curve? Once you get through a couple of rooms, it starts making sense. I adore the whole idea of how many items are in the room, how you turn the room tile to show how much is left over. That is such a great thing there. One of the biggest things that I still think is just so bizarre is how to tell whenever you kill one of the aliens. You can haul off and hit it for three damage right away, but then you just randomly flip over a card and like, no, it didn't do anything. Well, it didn't do enough. You flip over a five and it's like, no, he's still alive. Yeah, and it just seemed very nebulous as far as, well, we'll just flip it over and see how much is left there. And you don't really know. And that that was just in my mind as far as learning. Anytime that I teach the game, people do, wait a minute. So I dealt it four damage and we flipped over a five card and it's still alive. I'll deal it one more damage and we flipped over a three. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's almost like it has fluctuating life. I exactly. think they're trying to emulate that the alien is healing. Or you don't know. Like, man, there's some people that, you know, I punch them once, they're going to fall over. And then there's some people out there that I punch them once, they're going to get enraged and beat the crap out of me. And sometimes I don't know which one's which. And I think maybe that's what they're trying to emulate with, with their did you deal enough damage right, mechanism right. in the game. And maybe that's something that can be better clarified when playing the game, whenever I get a chance to play it again. Your explanation of that just changed my mind completely. You are going up against an alien species you don't really know anything about. So, yeah, maybe they do have a self-healing. You don't really know. So that kind of puts the mystery back into that. But as far as the learning curve, yeah, it will take a few turns to kind of get used to what you can do. 
because you are really thrown into this game as far as you aren't like a super soldier going in there. You're the janitor that has a pressure washer. You're <laughs> this person that was tucked away hiding out in the air duct. Sometimes, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are correct. Once you get the first couple turns down, you understand the general gist of how things go. It does unfold as far as you flip over a tile. It tells you what happens. So, yeah, it, it does do a good job of that. I would say this takes even more than a few turns. Uh, to me, I think... I think it takes a learning game because you have your objective. If you're brand new to the game, you have an objective that you might not fully understand. Right. And you have a board game, which has a, a means of getting out, you know, getting on an escape pod or leaving through one of the, uh, one of the mail vents in lockdown, the means of getting out that you have to wrap your head around. And then you have a deck of 10 cards. And one of them says that you can repair a door. Mm -hmm. One of them says that you can repair a malfunction token. And you go, wait, what? One of them says recharge an energy weapon. What? <laughs> I think the puzzle starts to show like all of the interconnectivity is going to reveal itself within just one game. It doesn't take much, but you do need that full game. And that's why I think so many players are like, okay, let's get back into it. I know how knowledge works. I know how alien weaknesses work. I know what to do when I'm at the nest. I know how to scan the cards. I know how to get off the base. Uh, I think it is very welcoming for that second playthrough. But before we talk about replayability, let's talk about the meat of the game. Let's do when it. When you're playing Nemesis and your brain is being put to the test, what's doing it? It's the initial exploration of your area. Going around and flipping over those tiles, seeing what's there. That's fun. I think that's the main part of the game that I really enjoy. I don't really enjoy the combat. Getting the things you need to craft your certain weapons, sometimes they're so far apart, it's difficult to actually get them. But once again, yeah. I understand that they're trying to show that there is a scarcity of things left over on this compound or on this ship so you have to hurry up and find the stuff that you need. Like but, it's meant to be a grind. Yeah, yeah. It's fun doing those kind of things, but I think the initial exploration, that's the fun part. Because then you're like, oh, there's the nest. There's the engine room. I need to get the engine room for something. As far as I'm concerned, that's the biggest part of the media game that just stands out to me. The exploration, finding out where things are, that's whenever I'm most excited playing this game. There is a bit of meat in the card play. You get a five-card hand to start a round, and much like a game like Terraforming Mars, two actions per turn, mm -hmm. and then you pass, then two actions per turn, until you can't do actions anymore, or opt not to, and then the round's over. Sometimes, some of those cards, like, which one am I going to discard to pay for this action? True. There's a little bit of meat there, but I think you'll agree with me that this is not a game that you're going to be able to put your mind to it and really think your way out. No. This is a game that happens to you. In the old Ameritrash versus Euro game, much as games now have elements of both nemesis definitely leans more on the ameritrash thematic romp side of things plus there's a little bit of meat in your objective and trying to suss out what other people's objectives are this game can this game can get some table talk going oh, oh most definitely i tell you what i have never once checked the engine status and not told someone a lie or a truth about it, <laughs> depending on my objective. You know, like if I want to work with people, if I need everyone to survive, yeah, I'm going to be honest. If I don't trust somebody, then yeah, I'm going to, oh no, that one's running. And I, <laughs> that's, yeah. 
It's like my favorite thing. To, oh, good. We got a good engine. And I just hope, I hope that no one else checks it. Otherwise they know. Uh, but even if they know, they've got to figure out what my objective is. Mm-hmm. Ah, and they add that also with the, uh, with the, um, uh, what are the tokens in lockdown? Whenever you're trying to determine what the corporation's going to do, oh, whenever right, they show yeah. up, well, you only know your own. And there's some way to see the neutral pool and see what wasn't selected right. by players, not selected, but dealt out randomly. Scott, what do you have? Hey, Chris, what do you have? And do I know if you're telling the truth? Mm-hmm. I have ways of finding out, but it's going to take time. A lot of the meat of the game, though, is just exploring and seeing what event happens and holding on for dear life, strapping your seatbelt tight and seeing if you can hang on and enjoy the ride. Yes, yes, I, I do wholeheartedly agree with you on that. So going on to the next one here, as you said, you're alluding to the replayability and the variability of this game. Variability. Oh, dear God. I mean, you will never play the same game twice, ever. The different rooms are going to be in different orders. The cards that you draw are going to be in different order. The aliens that come out in different places, those are going to be completely different. So no matter what. And which alien comes out. Exactly. You never know what's going to happen. There is no possible way you're going to play the same game twice. This game will definitely get better once you are more used to all the little tidbits that are in the game, what the cards do, what's expected of you. Once you get more familiar with this and you get that well-oiled machine going, this game is really going to shine. The first couple times you play, yeah, you're going to have a good time doing it, but I don't think that you're going to appreciate this game as much as it deserves appreciation until you get to that point of really knowing how things go. Well, whether we're looking at based nemesis or lockdown, you've got different characters, uh, six different characters per game. Plus they have the medic add on and you know, you can use the nemesis characters in your lockdown game and vice versa. Each of these characters has their own 10 card deck and there is some crossover from deck Mm -hmm. to deck, but there are also some unique cards. So the soldier has that bullet spray where he can just unload a gun on an intruder, whereas the scientist, he can access computers. The captain can give orders. Get on the intercom. Scott, I need you to get back in there with that (laughs) alien, which inevitably, even if you're friends, you still have to do that. The ship or the facility, you have rooms numbered with a one on the back. Those are going to be in every game because functionally the game has to have a comms room for the game to work. The game has to have XYZ room in order for it to function appropriately, but the tiles with a two on the back. Those are random. So base nemesis, you use, I believe it's five of them out of a stack of 10. So one room you might, uh, one playthrough, you might have the showers. The next playthrough, you might not. The events, holy crap, the events, they can completely change the flavor of your game and they can up or they, they can increase or decrease the complexity. Well, not the complexity, but the difficulty. Sometimes the events revolve around if a character is carrying an egg or if they're in the nest, in which case, depending on where you are, it can become so dramatic. Whereas other times you might flip that card and go, eh. Other times the events have fire spreading throughout the ship. Again, that could be a huge detriment or a big nothing burger. And I think most importantly, the objectives, how they shape how you and I uh, were playing in our game and the players that are at the table. Are you going to go off on your own and try and explore the entire ship? Or are you more concerned with the destiny of the nemesis? You might need player three to be dead. Or you yourself might need to simply survive. Uh, you and I played the one time and you just had to survive and have collected seven things. You went mm-hmm. with a corporate objective of like gather our, our valuables and get them off the ship. <laughs> Nemesis gives similar tools 
for every game, but every play has enough variation that it's going to make it very different from the last. This is the part I was not looking forward to. The downsides of the game. My biggest thing is Nemesis, I really didn't have that many downsides of that game. I had a All good right. time playing that. Mm-hmm. Nemesis Lockdown. Oh, okay. You guys can send the hate mail to me. I don't care. I did not care for Lockdown at all. I'm waiting for what the game does to me, not what I can do to the game. I never once felt like I could actually win. No matter what I needed, it was somewhere almost completely inaccessible for me to get to it. Ugh. And the biggest thing that just drove me nuts was the downtime between the turns. The last time mm-hmm. I played Lockdown, I just almost got to the point where I was waiting for my turn to be over so I could go back to my phone for something more interesting to do. Oh, um, Scott. I know, I know, I know. Oh. I was doing breaking cardinal rules, but there was nothing that drew me into that game at all. Nemesis, mm-hmm. yes, I felt the pressure. I felt the pressure of the timer going down. And once you got everything to that one point, and the self-destruct was turned on. Oh, crap. We got to hurry up and get things done. It always seemed like with lockdown, we'll flip over a card. Oh, well, it was a corporate thing, but nothing really is going to happen. It was like nothing was actually happening at times. Lockdown, it was just like, okay, I moved to a room and I'll just wait for my turn now for the next turn. I can move one room. I'm going to try and paraphrase the king here. It sounds to me like you thought in Nemesis you were in the driver's seat, whereas in Lockdown you were in the passenger seat. Um, I would say that I felt that I was in the driver's seat in Nemesis. Nemesis Lockdown, I felt like I was in the rumble seat, hanging on the back of the car, just kind of going along, not exactly knowing where I was going. Safety standards have changed a lot. Oh, they most certainly have. Scott, Nemesis isn't a game that you're going to be able to play wisely and eke out a win. When you take a game like Brass, if you play smart and you calculate how how to carry out your turns, you have a good chance of winning that game. But in Nemesis, sometimes you need to get an egg off the ship. So logically, you go pick one up and then the random events pummel the hell out of you for it. There's optimal play in the game, I'm sure. But generally speaking, things are going to happen that are outside of your control. Think of this like an Ameritrash beer and pretzels game that amps it up a bit and gives you a little bit of complexity. I guess The biggest downside is that in any given turn or in any given game, there are going to be times where someone just gets smacked down. Uh, With Lockdown Man, we were playing that game, and it happened to me. I was the first person to die. I ran into an alien, tried to shoot at him three times. Miss, miss, miss. I don't think I dealt a single damage. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm out of ammo. I'm going to run away. And that's when I first found out that Nemesis Lockdown included cards that say, he swiped at you, you took some damage. Oh, and if you're running away, he follows you. And I was like, oh, great. Then during the game phase, after the event, the alien got to take a swing at me there. And then back to my turn, I tried to run away again. Wouldn't you know, I pulled another one of those cards that says, and if you're trying to run away, he follows you. (laughs) 
I was just dead. Like I was enjoying it. Like it was fun and I got a great story to tell out of it. But if I'm wanting to sit down and put my mind to something, that game would have been a total bust. But as is, at least we can we can all tease me for the next year about that playthrough. <laughs> it can make for an excellent story when it's all said and done. But for a lot of folks, it might not be the experience that they're looking for on game day. That's the biggest downside is that sometimes the game just happens to you. And it's mean to you. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and that's that's the way I felt. And it was, I appreciate that they didn't pull punches in making this game, but it would they could have pulled one or two punches. Oh, when I teach this, I even tell players, I'm like, look, if you run into an alien, you can try and fight it, but most of the time, you ain't gonna be able to kill it. Yeah, yeah. Your your best option is don't run into an alien because they're that difficult. Aside from like the soldier with his bullet spray card, most of the players are going to have a really hard time with the aliens. Yeah, the janitor is going to have like a staple gun going after the thing. So <laughs> it's going to pressure wash. Yeah, yeah. I love it. That Whenever you're looking at the janitor, you're like, you're a special weapon. Really? A pressure washer? I mean, well, I, those things can hurt. I, well, yeah, yeah. But it, hey. We've looked at these aliens. I don't think it's going to hurt the alien. Uh Uh-uh. No. Scott, we're going to save comparisons for the end. So talking about Nemesis, just Nemesis itself, was it fun and who's it for? Yes, it was fun. I had a blast playing that. This is not an entry-level game by any means whatsoever. You can introduce it to somebody But I think that there are just so many mechanics in this that experienced players are used to that they can jump in a little bit quicker. Getting a new player into playing it, it may be a bit too heady for them to jump in on. For someone who loves the Alien movie, who loves a mystery of trying to find out where things are and a little bit of deduction thrown in there as to what everyone else is going to be doing, Nemesis is a can't lose. It is a great game. I'll agree. I think Nemesis was a ton of fun. It's thematic as hell. It draws out tension, draws out laughter, tells a story, all while being more intelligent than your average, your standard Ameritrash game. It's not move and see what happens. It's staying in the collection. It lives right in the middle of the shelves for easy pickings. Mm -hmm. I love it. Now, who's it for? I think it's actually easier to say who it's not for than who it is for. (laughs) I think it's got appeal for a wide range of gamers, but I can say, you know that group at your game store that plays the super meaty Euros and their good time is sitting quietly, heads down, they're mauling over decisions. Nothing wrong with that, and I enjoy that myself, but you know the type that I'm talking about. The guys that are playing the 18xx games, or (laughs) the group that calculates every... You ever... The people that shush you, they're playing their game, and whenever they hear laughter in another part of the shop, they they give you that dirty look like, mm-hmm. we're, we're working over here. That group probably ain't loving Nemesis. But in that same vein, a group that likes shorter games, party games, doesn't get invested to a game's theme, they might just look at Nemesis as a collection of random actions with a goal whose pathway to completion might seem a little convoluted. If you like a good Ameritrash romp with random variables getting in your way, games like Zaya, Nanty Narking, uh, you remember Western Legends? Yes. Different game style, but uh, similar in that, like, okay, you've got all these options, but things are kind of going to get in your way. For those gamers, I think you're going to love Nemesis. Now, Lockdown. 
I think Lockdown is going to have very much the same who's it for. I love Lockdown. I'm basically going to say what I just said about Nemesis. I feel the same way about Lockdown. Scott, I'm gathering that you didn't love Lockdown. I did not love Lockdown. No. Did you like Lockdown? Now, this could be the people I played with that we weren't really engaged in the game, possibly. I don't know. I don't know exactly. Okay, if you and Nemesis Lockdown were stuck on an island and it was up to the two of you to repopulate the Earth, do you think <laughs> Do you think that's something you would consider? Well, I would be waiting for my alien overlords to come in and take over the Earth because, <laughs> no, I would not repopulate the Earth with alien lockdown or Nemesis Lockdown. Lockdown... It's got the same general feel as Nemesis, but they added things into it, and in order to make room for it, they took out some of the fun. Adding the thing with making sure that you have electricity going to certain places, Mm -hmm. or making sure you can take the elevator. If they removed one of those things there, if they removed the elevator and just made it easy to just go through there... The knowledge track, the deduction of the CSS tokens. Yeah, there is a bit more in there. I think if they took out one or two of those things, you have that well-oiled machine. You have a lot of fun. You have that fun game. Because, yes, Mm -hmm. I agree with you. In Nemesis, whenever we're done, I had that great story of collecting my stuff, jumping on that pod, and taking off. Lockdown, I have a hard time remembering exactly what my objective was. Well, funny thing, I mean, the first time we played Nemesis, your goal was to make sure I was dead. One of my goals for playing Lockdown was making sure you were dead. (laughs) (laughs) It almost felt like there were things added to it to make it a deeper game experience where I don't know if it really needed to be added. I'm not poo-pooing it for what other people want. Just for me, it wasn't the great experience I was expecting. So in a level up first, we have a kind of bit number nine. Let's talk a little bit about what's the same and what's different. Uh, For those of you that may be wanting to buy Lockdown and you're not sure, maybe you already have Nemesis or which one do I go for? Let's talk about what's the same. Uh, You got to meet your objectives in both games, right? Yes, you do. Intruders in Nemesis and Night Stalkers in Lockdown. I think they function basically the same way. Pretty much. I mean, as far as whenever you're drawing out of the bag and seeing what's going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Tokens in the bag at the start of the game. It's the exact same setup. The noise mechanic is the same. Mm -hmm. The event phase is the same. The card play is the same. And the room discovery is the same. Basically, if you've played Nemesis, you're barely going to have to brush through the rule book to understand how to play Lockdown. So what's new and different? Now, you said that Lockdown was you're not preferred of the two. If I had to pick between the two, I think I actually prefer Lockdown. So what are some of the things that Lockdown does differently? Get rid of the engines, get rid of the destination, and instead we're going to add electrical power in a multiple-layered facility. Uh, You've got the elevator that'll help you get up and down. So a little bit of, we'll say, less restrictive movement introduced by the elevator. Mm -hmm. But the game plays on darkness. If you're in an area that's powered versus non-powered, if you flip over an alien card because they're attacking you, and you're in a place that does not have power, you're in the dark, it's a little bit meaner. It does some worse things to you. The computer actions taken in rooms, both games have computer uh, rooms with the computer icon, and you can use a computer action. In lockdown, if you don't have power, 
in the level that you're on, well, you can't use those computer actions. I actually really like that. It's one more thing to consider. The contingency tokens introduce a new barrier to escaping. I'm not sure yet if I love that. The introduction of a, another form of deduction. You already kind of have to suss out what other people's objectives are. Introducing those tokens to see what the corporation is going to do when they show up. You're limited on time and health oh, yes. from the get-go. To add this in also, it's like, oh, they added knowledge. Like I said, you primarily use it for the alien weaknesses. Some mm-hmm. of the objectives care about your knowledge. They added that. But that's really the biggest differentiators from one game to the next, which for me, that's why I think if you love one, you're going to love the other. I, I think you're an anomaly. I Hey, it's not the first time I've been called one of those. So, so Scott, if you own Nemesis, do you need to buy Nemesis Lockdown? Huh, this, this is a, a conundrum because both of them are so different and yet so very much the same. But I would say if you have one or the other and you have a limited budget, I would say, no, you don't really need to have the other one. But if you do have more of a budget buffer that you can go into and put more money towards games, I would say it wouldn't If you got fat stacks. Oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't hurt to have both of them because they have very nice mechanics that are separate from each other. Like you said, with the electricity, the elevator, the knowledge, things like that. So those things are important. But yet, I would say one or the other would be good. I agree. I don't think that the experiences are differentiated enough to warrant a big price tag just to add something that is the same with subtle variations. If you can afford it and you – well, maybe it's one of those more of a good thing. It ain't broke. Don't fix it. I love Nemesis, so I went out and bought Nemesis Lockdown. No, I didn't. I pledged whenever you could get the all-in gameplay to get both. Uh, That's the reason why I have both. But if I only had Nemesis and I showed up at someone's house to play Lockdown – it's not a game that I would go home and be like, man, I need that. Right. I would look at my nemesis on the shelf and be like, wow, you know, I'm glad I got to play the other version of the game that I already have. So Level Up loves Nemesis, and we're a little bit split on Lockdown. I love Lockdown. I, uh, Scott's being an old curmudgeon. Yes, I am. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hey, hey, kids, kids, get off my lawn. Okay. <laughs> He's back. (laughs) Scott says, Nemesis Lockdown, get off my lawn. Somewhere on a doomed and distant planet, life has emerged, competing for supremacy until the world's inevitable destruction. One year ago today, we reviewed Doomlings. Fun fact about Doomlings, this is the very first game that we got a prototype copy of on the show, and I'm so glad we did. It ended up with thousands and thousands of backers, and it just delivered, I think in January, right after Christmas, I got that gold box, I got my Doomlings in. Scott, what'd you think of Doomlings? Still loving this one? Well, I just got a chance to play a game with it with my wife the other night, and she loved it. It was very simple to play. It was a lot of fun to play. And the fact that every single card is different. I mean, there's a couple ones that are in there that are similar, but... Oh, like the kidney yeah, that goes up in multiple. Sure, exactly. Sure. Just having that much stuff in that box. And it's such an easy one. It's so colorful. So much fun. 
it's kind of a party game, but not really. So it kind of fits into that thing where you're sitting around with uh, six of your friends. Hey, let's give this a try and give it a play. It's not something that's going to take a lot of thought, but you're still going to have a lot of fun reading the little color uh, commentary on the cards, what they do. The other night we were looking at, and there was a word that was kind of uh, interesting. We didn't know what it was. So, of course, we had to go, Google, what does Sadate mean? Well, the funny thing about that was Sadate was really close to a word that was used in Pootie Tang, the movie. They went into this whole thing of the explanation of it. Now, okay, now that movie is one of my favorite movies of all time. I cannot you, stop. You're right off the deep end. It does not. We're still on Doom Oh, yeah, yeah, here, we're right? still on Doom Links. It made us laugh whenever we heard that. And that, in turn, made that experience of us playing the game fun. And we laughed more about different words we didn't know. It was just a lot of fun. It is just a joyful experience whenever you're playing this game. Tell you what, this has made its appearances at our meetups. Uh, one of our meetups, I think it was back in November, we put up the big board that says, here's our upcoming review games, get a ticket, try and win a game. And we did the Kickstarter feature game for that meetup was Doom mm-hmm. Links. And I had a chance to show it off to a few people. Last game day that I had with Brendan and Mike, we finished our Clank Legacy campaign and we had a little bit of time left. So it became a Doom Links game. We, we had a couple games of Doom Links. Absolutely loved it. I forgot how much fun it is. I tell you what stuff goes awry in a game of doomlings there are optimal plays in any given turn but then you flip up an event and it says no red cards can be played this turn and you have a hand of red if you play a colorless you get another people are swapping cards stealing cards it's a hoot i'd absolutely recommend doomlings how about you oh without question i mean it is like i said it's just a joyful experience you cannot help but smile and have a good time while you're doing it and hey What can people use more right now than smiling and having fun doing something? Beer. Point taken. We like to get our last 10 reviews and see what our top five games are. Now, it's going to be a little different here because in our top 10, we have a top nine. Because unfortunately... In our most recent 10. Yes, yes. uh, I did not get a chance to play Factory 42. So... I only have nine of the 10 games that I can choose from, but I feel I have a pretty gosh darn good list here. Okay, so what are our 10 games that we recently reviewed? We did Factory 42, Mm -hmm. Nemesis, Nemesis Lockdown, Destinies, Merchants of the Dark Road, Moonrakers, Origins, Corrosion, Cape May, and Micro Macro Crime City. That's a heck of a list, Scott. It most certainly is. I mean, it sounds bad to say this, but... I look back at our last 10 reviews, we're getting like really impressive games more and more as we go along here. And it's... You know what? It's the best batch of 10 that we've had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll say that, no doubt. It's wonderful to have this kind of problem of trying to pick out five games out of a really good selection. Well, let's count down from five to one. How about I go first and then you can say yours. What's your number five? My number five was Origins First Builders. What a gamer's game this is. We've got a dice placement civilization game with aging dice. I love the city building tiles and how you can trigger them with dice placed into those seats of power. The Zodiac tracks, the abilities, it adds just enough variability to a game that I 
think Origins is going to be back on the table pretty regularly. So my number five was Origins. What do you have? What you said. I chose Origins as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just for the same thing. It's one of those games that they have a lot of mechanics in it, but it was never any time that I felt overwhelmed. There was a lot of strategy in what you wanted to do. And there was never any one certain strategy that would steer you into winning. Absolutely. I'm definitely looking forward to playing this one again. Scott, I have this terrible fear that we're going to sync up with all five of our picks. Let's find out. My number four Uh, is Moonrakers. Moonrakers mixed deck building and negotiation really well. The game's simple enough to pick up and play, but it offers a ton of strategy beyond simply negotiating in the cards that can be acquired, be it for crew for your deck or upgrades for your ship. If you like deck builders, but you want some more interaction with other players, look no further. I thought Moonrakers was cream of the crop. What's your number four? My number four is Cape May, actually. Hey, all so right. This was a great one where you are going into the great bird-watching beachside town of Cape May. You're going around. You're building businesses. You're building vacation homes for people to come down, spend their money, and you become the tycoon of Cape May. I truly enjoyed this game, having fun going through the streets. And there's such a strategy with how the streets go. Some of them are one way. I mean... Lord knows, if you're from Pittsburgh, you know what a pain they are at times. Getting into one section and not being able to get back to where you need to go. Really a a great design, great time playing it. And this is one that it's been a while, and I think it desperately needs to come back to the table there. So Cape May is my number four. My number three is Corrosion, and here we've got a challenging puzzle. Corrosion puts players in a position to feel clever. You're building your own machine through the course of the game, and the cards you acquire to do so quickly introduce asymmetry among the players. I always love when a game gives players a means of ending the game in some fashion, be it a a clock, so to speak, and Corrosion does that as well. It's a game that I'm looking forward to playing some more, but you have the copy, Scott. Bring it over. Oh, I most certainly will. What you got at number Uh, three? My number three was Moonrakers. Hey. I agree with just about everything you said on that. It toes that line, such an interesting line, of being a cooperative competitive game where you won't have all the resources you need in order to fulfill the jobs. So you need to kind of lure people in to help you out. You know what? Come help me. I'll give you this much prestige. I'll give you this much money. I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll give you an upgrade to your ship if you come out and help me. Not only are you playing the game to win yourself, but you have to be very careful of luring people in to help you win. So that's kind of a tough thing and a very unique mechanic. Really, really enjoyed Moonrakers. What do you got for number two? For number two, I cheated. I put Nemesis and Nemesis Lockdown in the number two slot. I didn't want my list to have both of them on it in some capacity. So I am cheating. And Adventures, if you want to know why I love Nemesis and Lockdown so much, just start the episode over. What do you got Uh at number two, Scott? Number two, I have Merchants of the Dark Road. Mm. It was truly a surprise, a, a joy to play this game. Going back to PAX, we had a chance to, you had to sign up to get in to play this game. And right away, you're kind of like, okay, if you have to sign up to play it, I mean, there's got to be some heat going behind this game. 
getting a chance to sit down and play it, there's so many unique things there. Going around the rondelle, stopping at different markets, picking up people and taking them to different cities of the locations they need to go. Mm-hmm. So many little things here. It's it's like a bunch of mini games, but they work together so well. They got this down to a fine machine here. Really, truly had a wonderful time playing Merchants of the Dark Road. All right, Patrick, you got it now. So what is your number one game? Of the last 10 games that we reviewed, my number one game is Merchants of the Dark Road. I really I like had a feeling. this game. <laughs> In fact, I'll underscore that I really like this game. And Scott, you know that I don't underscore things very often. I oh, no, have a no, thing no, no. about lines underneath written word. <laughs> Merchants has a rondel map, which offers players a choice of actions at each location. And whichever action they pick usually leads to even more choices. You can't help but feel like the player who plays most optimally will win. But even if you don't, it's hard not to have fun. I think what puts Merchants over the top for me is that it provided a system of Euro mechanisms, that thinky gamer style set of rules, yet it introduces theme. And it does so with very little story. No miniatures, no app, nothing like that. There's plenty of praise out there for this game, but compared to other mega games, I can't help but feel like it's a tiny bit under the radar, or maybe too specific a theme or game style to have the broad appeal of some of the more popular games. It's still very new, and it's already in the top 400 on BGG, but uh, I'd like to see this someday crack that top 100. Oh, yes, very much so. Scott, what do you have? The last 10 games that we reviewed, this is the one that you ranked number one. Corrosion. I knew it. It was such a unique game that we played it, and we were kind of fumbling through the rules. Played it again whenever we got back home, played it at SCG Hobby, and then it clicked. Started and Everything got into place. And then it's like, I get it now. And it's just such an elegant design of this game, how everything compares that is dependent on everything else. And you get things going. And once you get that engine going, my God, it is a beautiful thing to watch. I want to learn to master this game. This is one of those games that's just really, really an intense experience. And I can't wait to play this one again. Well, Scott, episode 50, big ol' 50, is drawing to a close. That should be both of our level ups for the episode, but let's talk about how we leveled up since last time. I'll lead it off. I made a trip to the zoo with Nikki. We have a new segment coming out in the next episode or two, and it's going to be about animals in games. We actually oh. spoke with zookeepers. Nikki used to work there. So she's like, yeah, no, I, I can get us in there. So we took in the field mic. We got to talk with Henry and Kathy and they told us all about these different animals. I can't wait to put together this segment. I think it's going to come through beautifully. And that is my level up. How did you level up since we last spoke? I got a chance this past weekend to go up in the mountains with a bunch of my fraternity brothers and sit around eating smoked meats, drinking some beer, playing poker, and losing money to some of my best friends in the world. We get up there, we act stupid, we make fun of each other, but we never laugh without hugging each other, having a bunch of laughs, and just having an absolute blast all together. I truly hope that everyone has a group of friends that they can get together and have those type of times together and laugh and joke and just 
put the outside, push it away, and just enjoy the moment you have there together. It's such an important thing to have, and I couldn't thank those guys more for the great weekend we had. Till next time, Scott. Until next time, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.